You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou... A saying that I hear a lot as a pastor, and that I certainly said, especially early in my faith walk, was this. I don't want to fear God. I want to love Him. But then you come to church, and unless you're really a complete newbie, at some point you're going to hear people saying things like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, quoting the book of Proverbs to you. In fact, this is one of those that gets... But back when they were Christian bookstores, before everything was on Amazon, um, you'd see posters like this all over the place. Now... I want to offer to you that it's really worthwhile to talk to your pastor. Um, In the narthex, in the coffee hour, at Bible study, send me an email. Because what happens is that when people say something to me, ask me a question, it's at the top of my mind. And I figure for every one person who finally gets up the, uh, the gumption to say something to me, there's probably 10 people with the same question. And so when I get the Sunday greetings, which I don't select, when I see the people's questions coming together with the themes and the readings, I think, I'm listening, God. So just recently, a member said to me, you know, this fear of the Lord stuff is something I really don't think I have a grasp on, and I think it's kind of, it's impeding my spiritual growth. And um, I think that's true for all of us. Uh, It's not something that's preached or taught about a lot in this era of the church as it was in other generations. And in fact, one very famous public uh, theologian has said that maybe one of the things that's most missing from church life is a balanced teaching on the fear of the Lord. So that is what uh, my sermon is going to revolve around uh, today. Just to start on this topic. No way we could cover it all, uh, but just to start on this topic. And... um, I I want to offer to you that after the first sermon, I asked Michael, and he says, well, pastor, there's a lot of meat in that one and not a lot of milk. So, um, but it's a a weighty topic, so I apologize, but we're we're going to get into it a little bit here, but I hope that you'll find it uplifting in the end, because what we have in the fear of the Lord is better than what we have any place else we turn. So, as we begin our, our, today, as we're hearing the gospel reading, Come on. Ian, can you click that side for me again? For some reason, my thing's acting funny. Jesus says these words. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Now Jesus is grabbing a hold of that first text we heard from Isaiah, and he's not only quoting it, he's riffing on it a little bit, okay? Um, And here's the part of the text that he's grabbing in particular, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Now this, what's clearly implied here is that it's only a commandment taught by men. What he means is that they can say the words, but they don't have a grasp on this with their heart. So 
I think that's true of our generation, certainly true of me personally. That's something I've have, I have to work on to get a hold of. It's not natural to my way of thinking. Um, so we're going to work to get, get a hold of this with our heart in today's sermon, um, this time together. Now, why did the people not have a grasp on this concept of the fear of the Lord? Well, if you go back to the beginning of Isaiah chapter 29, you find out that the people are forgetful. Nothing is new. They barely get out of Egypt and they're forgetful enough that they build a golden calf and now they're building something else. What happens is, is that they have forgotten the ways in which God has delivered Jerusalem in the past. And so what they have come to fear is this beautiful temple that they've got in the city that surrounds it that to hold on to that re re requires not faith in God and his protection, but rather their own best wisdom, their discernment, their decisiveness, and their power. These are the things that will, in the end, preserve their prosperity, not God. This is, they've forgotten how powerful the Lord is, and so they think it's come to rely solely upon them to preserve this wonderful thing they have. Now, before we look too hard at them and think too, too bad thoughts about them, I ask you this, how true is that of us in our day? How often do we think to ourselves that it's our wisdom, our discernment, our decisiveness, our power that will preserve our prosperity instead of relying upon the wisdom and discernment of God, His power to empower us there are so many things in our culture that are so precious that are rooted historically in faith in God's word but are getting untethered from it or are completely untethered from it now. Institutions that were founded upon the word of God that we rely on to train people to be good citizens, to be contributing members of society are largely untethered. This is the, the front of, this is the seal of the Yale University. If you don't speak Latin, lux et veritas means light and truth. And uh, the wording there on the Bible at the center of it is Hebrew. But our colleges are largely untethered from the Christian tradition that helped found them. The university was the invention of Christianity. So our institutions become untethered. Our beliefs become untethered. Beliefs that we think are universal like human rights, it turns out are nothing of the kind, and we'll reflect on that a little bit more deeply at the moment. And our moral habits, like compassion for the weakest in our midst and the marginalized, those are not historically common to all people. In fact, they're very uncommon in all of world history. And they sprang from Christian convictions. Now, how long will these institutions and values and moral habits continue when the Christian and Jewish convictions that underlie them are gone? And how quickly will they fade? So we're going to take a look at just a few things in our culture uh, to help us understand what it, the fear of God, why that's a good thing, uh, 
just a little more deeply. I, I cut a few things out from the first sermon. It was just a little long. Um, the next thing you're going to see is a very, very short video, about a minute and a half. And it's uh, someone put video to what was a radio interview between two African-American scholars, um, intellectuals. Now, my wife and I have lived among that chattering class for a good part of our lives. We spent the first nine years of our marriage living on college campuses. Um, and if it's hard for everybody to accept God's wisdom in place of their own, it's really hard for intellectuals because the best definition I've ever heard of an intellectual is someone who produces an idea as their end product. They can't flip burgers. They're not especially good at waiting tables. They may not be a good lawyer, but they, they create ideas, and that's what they market. So it's really hard to look, at someone else, to, to look at someone else's ideas, even if it's God's ideas, and accept them instead of your own. You've got a lot of investment in being right. So I want you to turn your attention to that screen for just about a minute and a half here. Again, it was a radio interview, so you need to listen kind of carefully. I said... And the other thing is that, that, that's, that's in, the, in the first of these chapters on uh, intellectuals and race is, is about the role of intellectuals in promoting racism. I mean, the intellectuals today are ready to cry racism at, at the drop of a hat. But if you go back 100 years ago, uh, 1912, for example, you will find that nobody was pushing uh, the idea that some races were capable only of being hewers of wood and drawers of water like the intellectuals. I mean, Keynes helped found the uh, Eugenics Society at Cambridge University. Mm -hmm. And Woodrow Wilson. Oh, Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, Woodrow Wilson was showing the uh, movie uh, Birth of a Nation, which glorifies the Ku Klux Klan, in the White House to mm -hmm. various leaders that he called in to view it with him. And, and these, and, and he, Woodrow Wilson and, and people around that time, they were called progressives, weren't they? This was one of the hallmarks of progressivism. People don't understand that that the progressives were pushing the idea that not only were there inferior races and they went beyond blacks and uh, Native Americans, they, went, they, they, they included the, the Jews, they included the Italians, uh, they included the peoples of Eastern and Southern Europe in general. And then it was they who pushed for uh, uh, laws outlawing intermarriage and restrictions on uh, immigration based upon uh, the races of people coming in and so on. So uh, it's ironic because, of course, by the last decades of the 20th century, the intellectuals were on the other side. Uh -huh. But in both eras, they did not take any criticism seriously. They, they dismissed all attempts to say that, that there were other things to consider. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And so that dogmatism was there in both times, even though they were saying the opposite things in one period. But there were lots of very people who were respect, respectable. Any number of international scholarly organizations. These these were not the village uh, idiots. These were not a bunch of ignorant rednecks. These were people with PhDs from the leading universities mm -hmm. in the country and who taught, were professors at the leading universities in the country. So these are these are not the rednecks. They're not the hicks. These are people with PhDs, highly placed in national and international organizations. But they're absolutely dogmatic about the fact that they're right. And they don't take any criticism, despite the fact that a hundred years later, the same chattering class thinks that they were absolutely wrong. What might be promoted right now in our moment in history that a hundred years from now people are going to look back on and think is crazy? This is 
This is what it means to rely on our wisdom and our discernment. But it's not just intellectuals who have a problem with this. It's politicians, too. I know you're shocked to hear that. But the so-called Universal Declaration of Human Rights, produced, of course, by the United Nations under the chairmanship of Eleanor Roosevelt, who you see holding the finished document here, was never universal. In fact, it was utterly rejected by some countries who absolutely refused to sign it at the time it was adopted. Why? Because despite the fact that the language in the document is non-sectarian, it sprang from the Christian convictions of people like Eleanor Roosevelt and other major contributors to it. So that people who felt that the future of humanity lay with eradicating religion in general could read the document and realize that it didn't fit their agenda. So the countries like the Soviet Union never signed that document. Nor did countries like Saudi Arabia. Because one of the things it says is that your religious convictions are just that. They're your convictions and you should have a right to live however you believe and under Sharia law, it's illegal to convert from Islam to anything else. Unless we think this is an error of the past, Richard Dawkins, who's one of the more famous of the modern, uh, what they call the, uh, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, the great atheist group, um, the modern atheist group, he has said that he would like to see all children taken away from their parents if they're being raised in a religious home, because if they're being raised in a religious home, the parents are engaging in child abuse. So the politicians have trouble getting it right, too. So if not the intellectuals, not the politicians, what about the business class? Let's take a look at the National Basketball Association. Now, whether you agree with the protesters or not, the National Basketball Association has been vociferous in its support of its players protesting regarding all the race issues that are going on in our country right now. And some of those protesters have been more vocal than others. But the National Basketball Association has been curiously silent when it comes to talking about the Uyghurs. Have you heard of this group? They are an ethnic and religious minority in China. They are Muslim by conviction and they're not of the same, uh, the same genetic uh, structure as, as a lot of the dominant groups in China. Now, the Chinese government today says that nothing's going on regarding the Uyghurs. There's nothing to see here. No one is behind the curtain. So I wonder where pictures like this come from. See those beautiful little girls um, in the upper right-hand corner there, and then you see this concentration camp. Humanitarian groups are estimating that a million of the Uyghurs have been interred in concentration camps as we meet this morning. A million of them. They've been forced off of the, their historic lands and those lands have been repopulated with people of the Han uh, racial group so that there's more uniformity and there's more um, openness to what the com communist government wants. And why is the NBA silent about this? 
Well, the NBA's great hope, their, their plan for the next 20 years, the expansion of their franchise is into Asia. So they don't want to criticize the powers that be over there because their business plan requires that they move out on out over there. In other words, it's good for business to be anti-racist in America and bad for business in Asia. So they adapt accordingly. And some of the most vociferous protesters like LeBron James say nothing about the Uyghurs either because some of their endorsements are manufactured in China. LeBron James has the second largest endorsement in history behind that of Michael Jordan from Nike Shoes. They're all manufactured over there. So he's got nothing to say about them, which has led to protests in Hong Kong where they burn his jersey and talk about how the only thing he cares about is himself and his money. Turns out that for humanity, for fallen humanity, the bottom line is business as usual. And business as usual is whatever is good for my business. We have an insane ability in our self-centeredness to rationalize incredibly evil things. And this is exactly what Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for today. They're known for their fidelity to the law and they're really going to get into the Word of God, but then the Word of God says, honor your father and mother is one of the commandments, which is my children memorized when they were like in elementary school, is the first commandment with a promise attached to it. Do this so that your days may be long in the land and you may prosper. And they say, no, call that money given to God and then you don't have to use it to support your parents. Remember, there's no social security system in the ancient world. You care for your family when they get too old to care for themselves or work for a living. So they come up with rules that benefit the religious class because the money's coming to them and get, them, get people to ignore the commandments of God. I've never heard somebody say this to me. I heard people say, I don't want to fear God, but I never hear them say, I, want to fear huma- I don't want to fear humanity. We want to trust humanity, sometimes in spite of ourselves. One of our favorite t-shirts we saw on vacation we were gone two weeks ago says, I used to be a people person, then people ruined it. (laughs) We want that, but history, if we pay any attention to, to it, says that that's who we should be afraid of. In fact, the ancient world was more realistic about this than we are. A Greek proverb current in Jesus' day said this, man is a wolf to man. Throughout most of human history, what you had to fear most were other people. And this brings us back to fear of God. Because a right fear of God, not a disordered fear where you're terrified he's he's out to fry you, but a right fear of God is the proper complement to a right fear of humanity. See, we fear humanity rightly because we, we know ourselves. We should know ourselves. We don't have low self-esteem. We're just realistic about what we're capable of as sinful creatures. And then, because we know ourselves, we turn to God in awe for the wisdom and the discernment and the power that He alone possesses. Craig Lunsborough, who is a... uh, 
a psychotherapist and a pastor says this. He says, self-serving biases and self-centered agendas are cotton jammed in the ears of our conscience. Even if truth shouts, we can't hear it. Even if truth shouts, we can't hear it. The only one without a self-serving bias and a self-centered agenda is God. See, the only person who will never be self-serving is the only one who never needs anything from anybody. And God is completely self-sufficient. Everything he does, including the worship of him alone, is for our benefit. It's for the benefit of his fallen and fallen away sons and daughters to draw us back toward him. Now, all we're saying when we're talking about the fear of God is that we are not better people than those who came before us. We are just as likely to make heinous mistakes as they were. We're not more advanced. We're only different. With different blind spots. See, the definition of a blind spot is you can't see it. The people who come 100 years from now will be able to see our blind spots better than we can. Our science... Our science, it's admitting that our science will be superseded by the science which is to come. It's the recognition of our limitations. Recognition of our absolute need for a wisdom and a discernment that is greater than our own. A a bird's eye perspective, a God's eye perspective on human relations. And all the fear of God means is that in the end, we're teachable. We're teachable. We are ready, like the apostles, to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn from him and from all of God's word as interpreted by him. The fear of God is nothing more than this teachable spirit. That's why Luther pairs fear of God with love of God. In the small catechism, when he's talking about the Ten Commandments, he begins every explanation of every commandment with these words, we should fear and love God so that we blank. Every commandment, even the negative ones, have a positive thing attached. And Luther was smart enough to see that, and he instructs us to fear and love God so that we listen to the wisdom and the discernment of God instead of our own. For as Isaiah says, it's when the wisdom of the wise is proved ridiculous and the discernment of the discerning is proved ridiculous, it's only then that we'll begin to see the blessings that God wants to give us. The healing of soul, body, and spirit, and culture that he wishes to give us. See, it's not, I don't want to fear God, I want to love Him. It's, I want to fear God in the right way, so that I may learn to love Him. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious Lord, our spirits are not, by habit, humble. We live in a culture that promotes self-esteem. But you call us to God-esteem, to know that you are what we can never be. 
and that we are not so different from those who came before us with their many mistakes. Lord, we ask that you teach us, make us teachable. Help us to learn from you the full content of your word, that we may show your grace and your mercy to the world around us and be filled with the love which you alone can give. And this we ask in the precious name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Sleeping by